Hey, every day in America, 22 million people stand by for Paul Harvey. His unique blend of news and views have made him one of the most listened to personalities in radio history. And he's become famous for his segment, The Rest of the Story. Each day, Harvey will recount a set of circumstances. And then after the station break, he returns to tell you the rest of the story. It's usually a conclusion with a strange twist. Paul Harvey's true stories condition you to expect the unexpected. Well, 2 Samuel begins with another version of the rest of the story. 1 Samuel, remember, ends with us thinking that we've gotten the full scoop on the death of Israel's King Saul. On Mount Gilboa, in the heat of battle, Saul was hit with an arrow. Saul knew that if he was captured alive by his enemies, cruel and inhumane treatment would follow. And so he asked his armor bearer to thrust him through with his sword. When the man refused, Saul fell on his own sword, an apparent suicide. Well, 2 Samuel chapter 1 tells us nothing that contradicts the account of Saul's demise in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But what it does provide us is the rest of the story. Now, it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag, on the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. Now, torn clothes and a dust shampoo were oriental signs of grief and mourning and loss. David knew this man was in deep distress, which reminds me of the Greek professor at the seminary. He did business on the side with a Greek tailor. And these two men shared a love for Greek philosophy and Greek poetry and all. And they were always reading the classics, the great Greek classics, and discussing them when they came in for business and so forth. Well, one day, the professor, he, he caught his suit on, a, on an edge of a table and he ripped his suit. He took it to the tailor, and the tailor took a look at the tear, and he said, Euripides? And the professor said, yes. And Eumenides? Euripides? Eumenides? You get it? Well, David is approached by a man who has ripped his clothes. And so it was when the man came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And then David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead? And in verse 6, the man shares the rest of the story. Then the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. And indeed, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? 
And so I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And oh my, an Amalekite. You remember the sin that caused God to withdraw the Holy Spirit and strip the kingdom from Saul? You remember what caused God to take the kingdom from Saul and anoint David as king? It was Saul's failure to kill all of the Amalekites. And how ironic it is that now it is an Amalekite that finishes off Saul. Remember, guys, partial obedience to God always ends up coming back to bite us. In the short term, we may feel that this is a good idea. This is a shortcut. We may not feel the teeth of partial obedience, but years later, it'll bite us. We'll reap its results. Well, he said to me again, please stand over me. This is what Saul said to the young man. Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Now, apparently the episode in 1 Samuel 31 has already transpired. Saul fell on his sword, but his suicide attempt failed. Hey, you know, Saul was always doing things halfway. (laughs) Partial obedience. Now he can't even kill himself all the way. He just kills himself halfway. Evidently, Saul is leaning on his spear with his sword stuck through his midsection. Sort of a Saul's kebab, you could say. He's wounded. And Saul knows that if he's captured by the Philistines, they'll nurse him back to health or do all kinds of cruelties to him. Saul would rather just die. And so he asked the Amalekite to finish off the job. And he says, so I stood over him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. In other words, I went ahead and put the king out of his misery. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. I'm sure the Amalekite expected a reward from David, perhaps a post in his new government. He thought Saul's demise would be good news to David, but he didn't know David's heart, did he? Therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is not the response the Amalekite expected. Remember, Saul's death meant much to David. Think of what all happened, what all it meant to David now that Saul is dead. He can finally go home. He can finally see his family and friends again. The throne that God had anointed him to occupy was now vacant, awaiting for him to claim. His life was no longer in constant peril. He could now settle in the land that he loved and with the people that he loved. But rather than jump for joy, David ripped his clothes and mourned. Here's an important example for you and me. David didn't take joy in another man's sorrow. And neither should we. Never kick a man when he's down, or even dead for that matter. You never know when you might end up wounded in battle and leaning on your spear. I'm sure much of David's mourning was over the loss of his buddy Jonathan. But he also expresses true sorrow over the death of the king. You see, David respected Saul's position while he was alive. Now he will respect his position after he's dead. As we've discussed, David and Saul were polar opposites, really. David was an internally motivated person, whereas Saul was an externally 
motivated person. You know the difference. Saul's inner disposition was tied to his outer circumstances, tied to the opinions of others. David lived his life. He wired his emotions to the will of God, to principle. Even though Saul's death would benefit him personally, David wasn't thinking selfishly. No, David saw defeated soldiers. He saw the cadaver of a God-anointed king now hanging from a Philistine wall. And it all brought shame and reproach to the name of God, and it broke David's heart. David mourned because he cared more about God's glory than his own welfare. Verse 13, Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And what David does next shows how strongly he held to his convictions. He respected the king's God-appointed position And he expected others to respect that position as well. Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The young man expected a reward. All he got was the sword. Understand David's position. For over a decade now, Saul has chased him like a rabbit, made his life miserable. Twice David had his enemy in his grasp, but chose instead to spare his life. You see, the Amalekites' action didn't reflect David's attitude. And if David lets this man live, it'll look like he's put his stamp of approval on Saul's death, Saul's murder. That that couldn't have been further from the truth. His critics might even use this occasion to accuse David of plotting some coup d'etat. I'm sure one of the reasons that David showed so much respect for Saul too was to set a precedent. For he wanted people to respect him once he became king. And if he's expecting that respect, he needs to show it to the previous king. David knows the actions against the king have to be punished. And so he executes this Amalekite. Be careful how you treat authority. One day you might find yourself in a position of authority and you might want some respect yourself. And here's a lesson for parents, as a matter of fact. David may have been tempted to let this Amalekite off the hook. I mean, think about it. The man thought he was doing King Saul a favor, even David a favor. And you know, there are moments when we parents are tempted to make exceptions and let our kids off the hook. We fail to enforce important principles, and we end up setting the wrong precedence with our kids. Hey, too much leniency today can produce lawlessness tomorrow. Keep that in mind. Well, verse 17 tells us, Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son, and told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The book of Jasher is an ancient text that no longer exists today. Apparently, it was an extra-biblical Jewish history. Now, there were several books written in the Middle Ages that were given the name at the book of Jasher. Even modern-day Mormons have a book by this title, but none of them 
are the original. They're something else. In verses 19 to 27, we have the psalm that David composes, the song of the bow. One commentator writes of this song, It stands out as the genuine outpouring of a noble heart, a heart too great to harbor one selfish thought in this dark hour of his country's humiliation. David is absorbed in his nation's loss, not his own gain. He begins his song, The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen, Saul and Jonathan. Tell it not in Gath, that was a Philistine city. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Don't let the Philistines rejoice in this. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, nor rain upon you. This was where Saul fell, on the hilltop of Gilboa. Nor fields for offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. And the implication there is that Saul was not prepared for the battle. The ancient Hebrews would saturate their shields in olive oil to make them slick so that they could deflect arrows that were shot at them. And of course, olive oil is also a symbol. It's not the only oil that Saul lacked, you might say, for the olive oil is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In a spiritual sense, the oil of the Holy Spirit had departed from King Saul long before this battle. And Saul's lack of God's presence and God's help and God's assistance was also what contributed to his defeat. Whenever we go to battle, we need to make sure that our shields, our weapons are dipped in oil, in the oil of the Holy Spirit. Trust in Him. Well, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. In other words, they fought valiantly. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. <laughs> and how in the world David could say that about Saul is your guess. You know, boy, talk about looking on the good side, thinking on the bright side. There wasn't a pleasant thing about Saul. He was a jerk. But what an insight into David's heart. He's always assuming the best, even about his enemy. You can't even assume the best about your wife. Shame on you. David assumed the best about his enemies. I suppose Saul started out somewhere when he was a baby, beloved and pleasant. And in their death, Saul and his son Jonathan were not divided. They stayed together. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O oh, daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Saul's reign had brought prosperity to Israel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this language and others like it is not evidence of some kind of homosexual relationship between David and Jonathan as people have suggested today. That couldn't be further from the truth. That's a, a great perversion. David is just admitting here that he never had a friend as loyal, as true as Jonathan, not even his own wives, had ever been as faithful a friend to him as was Jonathan. Sort of reminds me of the guy who said, well, my wife ran off with my best friend, and I sure will miss him. 
Well, that's sort of what it's, he's saying there. Verse 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul reached out, remember, to grab the robe of Samuel. And you remember what happened? He tore his robe. And the Lord told Samuel that he would rip the kingdom away from Saul. In essence, God looked at Saul and said, Euripides? And then he turned to David and he said, Eumenides. And it becomes David's job to mend this fractured kingdom, this kingdom that has been under the reign of Saul. And that's what David begins to do in chapter 2. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. (laughs) Notice God isn't speaking to David in flowery speeches here. He's just getting right to the point, isn't he? And so David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, and David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Now with Saul's death, the door suddenly swings open for David to return to the land of Israel. But first, he consults the Lord, and this is always a wise move. Don't just assume that you know what God might want you to do. Pray and ask the Lord to reveal His will. Proverbs 16, verse 25 reminds us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Self-deception is always a possibility, and we should guard against it. David prays, Shall I go up to the cities of Judah? And God answers, Go up. And then David asks, To what city? And the Lord says to him, To Hebron. And notice again, the brevity of God's commands. God charts the course of David's future in four words. Go up to Hebron. When the Lord speaks to you, don't expect a flowery, elaborate, long dissertation. Long, flowery speeches are not the Lord's forte. When God speaks to us, He usually gets right to the point. Well, verse 4 tells us, Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David actually gets anointed king three different times. The first time was by Samuel while David was still living in his father's house. We studied that earlier. The second time is now upon his return to Judah and to the city of Hebron. And the third time will occur seven years later when he becomes king over all of Israel. You know, it's, interest, it's interesting here that one anointing was not enough. And that's important for you and me. Notice David receives a fresh anointing every time God enlarges the sphere of his influence. And this is why I think that we need multiple fillings of the Holy Spirit. As believers, we need to be filled with the Spirit over and over again for new challenges demand fresh and new empowerments from God. Well, they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, 
You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord to Saul and have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. And just as David punished the Amalekites' contempt, here he rewards the respect shown by the men of Jabesh-Gilead. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Mahanaim is 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee on the east bank of the Jordan River. And this is where the Israelis had fled from the Philistines after Saul had lost the battle of Mount Gilboa. The enemy is now occupying what we call today the West Bank. He says, and he made Saul's son, Ishbosheth, king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. General Abner tries to perpetuate Saul's dynasty. And as a result, rival kingdoms are formed. We're told Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now David shares the kingdom with Ishbosheth for two years. Then he reigns five and a half more years in Hebron before eventually moving his capital to the city of Jerusalem. A split occurs in the kingdom of Israel. The northern ten tribes rally around Saul's son, Ishbosheth, while the southernmost tribe of Judah expresses its loyalty to David. It's interesting that the nation will again split along these same lines some 80 years later in the reign of David's grandson, Rehoboam. And the nation will remain split in two for the rest of its duration. The kingdom will divide north and south. You remember three of Saul's sons died with him on Mount Gilboa. And this is the first mention of a son named Ishbosheth, which leads us to believe that he might have been an illegitimate heir to the throne. One thing's for sure, Ishbosheth was a wimp. He was a very weak leader. His name means man of shame. And during the reign of Ishbosheth, the government of Israel becomes really a military regime ruled by the army and its general. General Abner becomes the strong man in Israel. Ishbosheth is just a puppet king. And an all-out civil war could have erupted if David had not shown some restraint, as usual. David takes the approach of deciding to trust the Lord. Just let the Lord settle the dispute. And in the Lord's time, he'll reunite the kingdom. But on occasion, there would be a border skirmish between these two armies, which is what happens in verse 12. Now Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeriah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. 
And then Abner said to Joab, hey, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now understand, there there were no real open hostilities at this time. There were no declarations of war. Here the two armies are basically on border patrol. And they end up, by chance, at the same watering hole. They just all settle down around the pool of Gibeon to take a break. I'm sure the soldiers were bored. Why do people join the army? They're looking for action. They want to be all that they can be. That's why you join the army. And so Abner tries to break up the board with a little competition. Hey, let's just have some some skills games here. Let's, Let's just play a little football out here by the pool of Gibeon. He challenges David's general Joab to a friendly joust. Remember, this isn't war. This is just sort of an army-navy football game. You know, just something to keep the soldiers occupied in peacetime. That's what's going on here. So they arose and went over by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. But it gets out of hand quickly. You know, boys will be boys. You put boys in some kind of little jousting match, and before long they're grabbing each other's hair and they're throwing punches at them, and it's getting ugly. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down together. They killed each other. Therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Two dozen soldiers just sort of square off for a friendly joust intended as entertainment for the troops, but tempers flare. The competitors get carried away. Someone draws blood, and before you know it, an innocent competition turns into a University of Miami football game. It's a bench-clearing brawl. Two dozen men end up dead on the battlefield. Both armies jump into the fray. It's like a baseball team with the bullpens clear. A sporting event ends up a very fierce battle. And when Abner sees that David's men are winning, he tries to escape. Verse 18. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab and Abishai, and Azahil. And Azahil was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Azahil had wheels, man. He could run. He could fly. He was a Hebrew Michael Johnson. He was a world-class sprinter. And so Azahil pursued Abner. And in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Azahil? He answered, I am. And remember, this dialogue now is going to take place as they're racing through the forest. Old Abner, he's huffing and puffing and on the verge of a coronary, while this fleet-footed Azahil is hot on his tracks, gaining ground by the second. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. In other words, Man, you need to back off or, or be prepared to fight. But Azahil would not turn aside from following after him. So Abner said again to Azahil, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? Abner knows what's about to happen. 
Azahel is young. He's inexperienced. Abner is a battle-hardened warrior. Abner has, he knows how to take care of himself. He's drawn blood before. And Abner doesn't want to kill Azahel, but if he stays at it, he's going to have to. Abner's worried about making Azahel's brother Joab mad. However, Azahel refused to turn aside. Here's what had happened. Azahel had stopped thinking. He had gotten motivated. He had gotten caught up in the thrill of the chase. He had become addicted to the adrenaline of the race. Be careful when you get so caught up in a pursuit that you stop thinking. Well, Azahel won't stop. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. As he heals, just about ready to catch his prey when suddenly old Abner slams on the brakes and he sticks the blunt into the spear back like that. And Azahel runs right into it and it punctures Azahel's midsection like a skewer going through some grilled veggies. And sadly, though it came too late to benefit him, I guess you could say Azahel finally got the point. And so it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. And the whole story became a pointed reminder that there are some battles, guys, just not worth fighting. Have you discovered that? If you're a married person, you need to discover that. (laughs) Rather than push on, there are times when it's better just to back off. Hey, if you're fixated on the thrill of the chase, if you're pursuing an ungodly goal, you need to give it up while you can. You need to give it up before it kills you. How many men have pursued that career at all costs until it eventually killed them or ruined their marriage? Hey, it's been said, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? (laughs) There are some battles just not worth fighting. Certainly, there are some causes in life that are worth dying for. Certainly, there are. They're deserving of sacrificial effort. But there are other campaigns just better off abandoned. You know, some of us have spent many, many years now chasing our Abner. Perhaps it's fame or maybe it's money or perhaps success. We've been in hot pursuit. We've thrown caution to the wind. We are addicted to the adrenaline Hey, our chase has become an ego trip. That's what's happened. But have we considered what it'll cost us if we catch our Abner? And if we catch him, will it be worth the sacrifice we've made? It's amazing how the pursuit of a dream can become a nightmare if that dream is not directed by God. It's time we evaluate our motive One of my favorite movies of all time is The Man from Snowy River. And early in the movie, Jim Craig, he loses a valuable mare in a stampede of wild horses. And Jim becomes fixated on that mare's retrieval, even though a tangle with the wild Brumbies might prove fatal. In fact, Jim's desire to get the mare back is so strong 
that it blinds him to the fact that he doesn't even own a horse. And that's when his old buddy Spur comes to the rescue. He gives Jim this mountain horse, and he throws in with the horse some important advice. He says, forget the mare, you duffer. Don't throw effort after foolishness. Some great advice. Hey, I'd like to say to you tonight, forget the car, you duffer, or the boat, or the money, or the career. Forget it, you duffer. Don't you throw money after foolishness. You don't know what it's going to cost you in the end. Are we throwing time and effort in the wrong direction? Well, verse 24 tells us, Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Alma, which is before Gia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? I mean, this is folly. This is madness. Why are men dying over this? This was a good idea gone mad. And Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. They give up the chase. Joab gives up the chase, but he doesn't yet know about what's happened to his brother Azahel. And so Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. They crossed the Jordan, they returned home. And so Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all of the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men and Azahil. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. In all, the death count was 380 lives were lost over foolishness, over male egos out of control. Probably happened a time or two since. Verse 32. Then they took up Azahil and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Joab buries his brother Azahil, but trust me, he doesn't forget who murdered him. And a lethal bitterness begins to brew and stir in the heart of Joab, Toward Abner, beware of bitterness. Well, chapter 3 summarizes the two years that the kingdom was divided. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The house of David loved God. David was anointed by God. The house of Saul lacked God's blessing. No wonder David grew stronger and Saul grew weaker. And the same is true of us. Those who are anointed by the Spirit, those who live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, will grow stronger and stronger. Whereas those who walk in the flesh, who trust in their own energies, in their own efforts, they become weaker and weaker. Well, sons were born to David in Hebron. 
His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. Notice this. Absalom was born of a pagan princess. David probably married Makkah to seal a peace treaty with her father. It was prudent politically, but it violated God's law. You remember Deuteronomy 17 had prohibited the king of Israel from building a harem and multiplying wives. And David's disobedience here will sow seeds of rebellion in the heart of his sons. We'll see that come to fruition later. Well, verse 4 continues his family. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethrium by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. In fact, David will end up with eight wives, 19 sons, and there were probably many daughters, but we're told of only one Tamar. Well, chapter 3 tells us of the power struggle that occurs in Mahanaim in the court of Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Now, it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Ishbosheth's weakness had provided opportunity for Abner's ambition. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? Now I wonder what was going on in Abner's mind. He had spent his whole life faithfully serving a madman named Saul. Now he's going to extraordinary efforts to prop up a weakling named Ishbosheth. And I am sure that he thought, I've done all this, and all I'm getting is a military pension. I deserve more than this. Guys, be careful. When someone who's supposed to be a servant develops an entitlement mentality, danger is on the horizon. This can happen to a pastor. This can happen to a church leader. Oh, nobody appreciates the sacrifices I've made. Oh, I'm just going to take a few perks for myself. And he starts out grabbing the glory and then maybe some gold and perhaps even some girls. Evidently, that's what happened to Abner. He ended up shacking up with Saul's concubine. Now, when King Ishbosheth confronts Abner, the old general bristles up, verse 8. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? I've been doing all this. You just treat me like a dog's head. Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. In other words, Abner is so angry he jumps sides. If Ishbosheth doesn't appreciate him, he'll just fight for David and he'll help David win this kingdom from the north to the south, from Dan to Beersheba. It'll all be David's. He'll see to it. And he could not answer Abner another word. Because he feared him. 
Ishbosheth wouldn't stand up to him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is this land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Potiel, the son of Laish. You recall that whole story that Saul had promised Michael to David. You know, if you brought him the hundred foreskins of the Philistines, of course, David doubled that number. He brought him 200. Still trying to figure out how he presented him to him. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But then, but then now, now that, that you know, Saul, what he did is he went and he took Michael away from David after giving him to them, after them consummating their marriage, Saul then comes in and takes Michael away from David. Just a cruel attempt to just jab him, just to destroy him. Well, now David comes back, and and he's wanting to see a token of of genuineness on the part of Abner. So he says, bring Michael to me, and look what happens. David now does to somebody else what was done to him. They go and they find Michael, and they take her away from her husband, and now bring him back to David. David. Michael's getting passed around like a football, it seems. Well, then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. And so Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. What a sad picture that was. I would imagine we could talk about that for a while. But Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Abner's rallying all of the northern kingdom now. He's trying to bring all of Israel under the banner of David. He's trying to pull them away from Ishbosheth now. And, and he wants to bring the whole nation's allegiance to David. Well, then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away. And he went in peace. David embraces his old nemesis, Abner. He sees a, a change of heart in Abner. And he sees this as a way of consolidating the nation. But all this hope of reconciliation is about to be spoiled by some bitterness. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron For he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king and he sent him away and he has gone in peace. And Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? 
Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he has already gone? In other words, we should have killed him. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. Boy, Joab was not nearly as forgiving as David was. And here, a chance of reconciliation, a chance for reconciling brothers, a chance of bringing competing sides together is spoiled by a root of bitterness. I wonder if that's happening in your life. I wonder if there's some old enemies that maybe have made gestures towards you that they would like to reconcile. You know, they'd like to bury the hatchet. They'd like to come back together and be your friend again. But you won't let it happen because of that bitterness in your heart. You need to repent. You need to ask God to take it away. You need to be willing to forgive and love. And be willing to receive that, that brother back. If he's sincere, if he, if he means well, you need to be willing to receive him back. Well, when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. And when Joab walks up to Abner, he's got a dagger hidden in his sleeve, and there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahil, his brother. Verse 28. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. Now, now David utters this curse on the house of Joab. But you got to understand, all David really does to punish Joab is just utter some words. He doesn't really take any action to discipline his own general. And for the first time, we see a dangerous tendency in David that will haunt him for the rest of his life. He fails to discipline the people around him. It starts with Joab, but we'll see it again when his children grow up and they start to do evil deeds. He fails to discipline his own children again and it eventually creates a real problem for him in his kingdom. He should have punished Joab, but he didn't. And so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Azahel at Gibeon in the battle. Joab got his revenge, but David now has a political crisis on his hands. Think of what's happening here. Word is spreading throughout Israel that Abner tried to defect, but David killed him. Nobody's going to be willing to trust David now as king. This chance of reconciling the kingdom is in peril. Well, David needs to do some damage control. Verse 31. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. I'm sure Joab was smiling on the inside. But David made him join in this display of public mourning, and they all ripped their clothes, and they all mourned for Abner. And King David followed the coffin, which reminds me of the casket that slipped out of the hands of the pallbearers, and it 
started sliding down this grassy hill and you know, it jumped the curb and believe it or not, it, it headed straight for the town pharmacy. The casket crashed right through the plate glass window of the pharmacy and it stopped right at the counter. The funeral director's chasing the casket and so he runs into the pharmacy and he, <clears throat> and he clears his throat and he says to the pharmacist, Wow, I just want to thank you for stopping my coffin. <clears throat> and King David followed the coffin. David mourned the loss of Abner just as you are mourning this joke. And so they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept. Abner received a state funeral. And part of it was David's deep grief over the death of Abner. Also part of it was to show the nation that David had no intention to kill Abner, that it had been done by other men, not David. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. Then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. He's fasting that day. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. David was quite popular. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. You see, David understood the wisdom of the proverb. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice. This was how David had reacted to the death of Saul. And this is now how he reacts to the assassination of Abner. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart. This was Ishbosheth. And all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab. And the sons of Rimon the Berethite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth also was part of Benjamin, because the Berethites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. Now Abner's two captains, they realize that without their general... They're no match for David's army anyway. Their only hope now is to assassinate Ishbosheth so that the kingdom will be reunited. Verse 4 seems to be a sidebar, but it'll become very important a little later. We're told Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell. She dropped him and he became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Keep that in mind. 
Then the sons of Remnon, the Barathite, Rechab, and Bana, set out and came at about the heat of the day, around noontime, to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. It wasn't around noontime, evidently it was right at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Just like Abner, Ishbosheth dies of a severe stomachache. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. They were running to present the head of Ishbosheth to David. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. Abner's captains think they're helping David get ahead. And I guess they were. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Remnon the Barathite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. He says, you remember that Amalekite? (laughs) You've come to me thinking you've done me a favor. I'm not pleased by this. You should have known this. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed him, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. More heads roll in tonight's chapters than bowling balls on a Friday night. And there have been very few spares tonight. You notice that. Mostly strikes and a few gutters. Literally. Jesus taught us a better way of dealing with our enemies, didn't he? Than killing them and chopping their heads off and chopping off their feet and hands and hanging them on the wall. Jesus told us to love our enemies, to do good to those who persecute us and despitefully use us. Jesus taught us a better way. But we learn a lot by reading about these stories. These stories. 